and I got all my notes there. Everybody's, well, not everybody, but most of you got a map. I, I hope I can get to this and do it right. This is, was really hard to put together, uh, this message, simply because uh, of, the, of the, uh, uh, the, the content, you know, of what we're dealing with. And um, anyway, so we're going to give it a shot and see what happens. But we're in Genesis chapter 6. And I had something on my mind that I was going to kill some time with for the sake of these guys that go back. They said, wait, wait till we get back. And now I can't remember what it was. So we're going to move on. <laughs> and we're going to move on to uh, in Genesis chapter 6. We've been dealing with uh, the whole series with the unseen world, the unseen realm. And in, we, in Genesis 6, We've been dealing with the first four verses there last week. Hopefully, we'll finish that up this week. We left off with verse 4 last week, and hopefully that gave you something to think about and meditate on, where it says there that children were uh, born to them uh, of this uh, relationship of the sons of God with the daughters of men. And we took note of the fact that the word children, at least in the New King James, uh, is an italics. There is no word in the Hebrew text for children, and it leaves it open. It doesn't tell you. But the word born or bore is a word that means to give birth. So we know that it's very, very clearly implied there that a birth of some sort took place. And, of course, the question would be then for all of us is, um, what was that birth? Now, this is, um, as many would say, a very sad and revolting story about rebellion of God's creatures that took place in heaven. I know for a long time, for, for you and for me, I'm sure, uh, for you as well, that that would have been a very difficult thing to think about, is that rebellion actually took place in heaven uh, against God, the Creator. But that's what scholars will tell us. That is what the ancient rabbis, um, I, I want to say 100%, I don't know if there were any exceptions, but virtually 100%, almost all of the Jewish scholars said these were angelic beings, heavenly beings that cohabited with daughters of the earth. So what kind of offspring then would you be talking about when you talk about these sons of God? Also called in the Bible, watchers, and other terms as well. They're, they're called by several, several different terms, watchers in the book of Daniel. And um, we, we want to delve into just what, why would God put this in the Bible? What's it here for? And what are we supposed to be learning from this? Um, according to our, our text here in, in Genesis, it says these sons of God had the unique ability to manifest themselves in human flesh. And in an earlier part of our study, we went uh, over in, uh, actually a few chapters over in Genesis chapter um, 15 it was, or no, it was 18, I'm sorry, chapters 18 and 19. 
and we looked at the fact that these three men came to the tent door of Abraham to meet up with him. And we found out that one of them was Yahweh himself in human flesh. And he was, and he was recognized as a man. The other two being angelic beings. They were called angels. And so we have an example right there amongst others in Scripture, but these, this was, was the most explicit one where it is said very clearly and plainly that they are called angels and they're called men and one of them is called Yahweh. And so it's not a surprising thing, I don't think, then it shouldn't be to us to find in this chapter in these first four verses, the same kind of an event taking place that heavenly beings could actually come from that realm and come to a material universe, as it were, this earth, and manifest themselves in human flesh. And, they, and not only that, I mean, they had offspring. But you know, when you look at the example for, uh, of the, the three that came to Abraham, they sat down and had a meal. They were able to eat. And he said, rest a while and take it easy. And they had butter and milk, it says, and a calf. I presume that was a pretty good meal. And they had some spices thrown in, I'm sure, to spice it up a little bit. And they enjoyed a meal. So, that's not such a surprising thing. And then, I think, too, if we often forget, if we just jump ahead to the New Testament, our Lord Jesus himself took on a body of flesh. We tend to look at that one as a super miraculous thing when it actually occurred here in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament, more than once. But he's the supreme example of what it means for someone in the spiritual realm to be clothed in human flesh. Christ incarnate, enfleshed. So, what do we want to say about it this then? Well, the scripture here talks about, in verse 4, about these Nephilim, giants that were on the earth. I think probably, well, I'm going to say most, but a good many English translations use the word giants. Others just trans, they don't, they transliterate it, the Hebrew word Nephilim, and leave it stand at that uh, as Nephilim. Of course, Nephilim, the, the Septuagint translates that as giants, and I think we're well served to accept it uh, that way, that they were, and we find other passages, which we will look at a few this morning where they're described as people very tall. So they were something unique in stature as well as probably physical appearance. I have no doubt. For the simple reason that they were, we would call them hybrid beings. I'm getting off my notes a little bit and I'm going to get, go from the end of the message to... to Put it in now, but it's going to happen. But you know, I, the thought occurred to me, you think of, uh, of a, a Toyota Prius. That's called a hybrid car, is it not? So what is a, a hybrid? 
It's, it's when you mix two differing things together. And in a, in, a, in a Prius, you have a conventional gas engine, and then you have electrical batteries that can run the car. Two completely different kinds of things to power a vehicle with. And it's called a hybrid vehicle. And of course, there are many others. That's just the one that came to mind to me uh, immediately uh, as an example. And even uh, the, the dictionary.com will tell you, and it explains to you, that it's two things. It could be animals, plants, whatever, of completely different kinds that have been mixed together or mingled together. Some use, actually use that word. As a matter of fact, they use that word about uh, here in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4, that these sons of God mingled with the daughters of men to produce these offspring called Nephilim. And so they were hybrid in that sense. They were spirit beings as well as beings of flesh. Now, that could lead us off into a, another study of all sorts uh, concerning Greek mythology, but just to mention it by way of passing, you've seen plenty of pictures of half spirit beings and these bizarre looking uh, animals or creatures, as it were, united together in one, one being. And many will trace that Greek mythology right back to this incident right here. That's where this began and where it occurred. So it's, it's really nothing that should surprise us. It's there in secular history as much as it is right here in the scriptures. And you can see those pictures virtually everywhere. Um, on, they've found them on Grecian urns that they've dug up, pictures of hybrids like that. And it was common, a common feature uh, in the Greek culture and really in the ancient Near East. It wasn't something that was you know, totally unusual. Now, um, the only other place where this term, the actual term Nephilim occurs in Scripture is over in Numbers chapter 13. So I want us to turn over there and read that passage, Numbers chapter 13. Um, it should be a, a familiar chapter, verse, chapters 13 and 14, because it has to do with the children of Israel getting ready to go up to the land of Canaan and enter the land and take possession of it. And we know that they, the Lord, through the influence of Moses and Joshua, sent up 12 spies to check out the land. And so in chapter 13, in the very last verse, verse 33, it says, There we saw the giants, or the Nephilim, the descendants of Anak, came from the giants. Now that's an important phrase that we will be investigating in just a moment, so we need to take note of that. The, the giants, the Nephilim, uh, and it says here, the descendants of Anak were from the giants from the Nephilim. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Now, if you look at um, verse 22, 
it says there that they went up through the south. And if you take note of your map, it says there they came to Hebron. And then it says Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Now, Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. And then if you look over at verse 28, it says, Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Now, you'll notice that's three times it's mentioned in this one chapter. That's something significant to grab a hold of. And when it says that they were very strong, it's not just that they were giants, that they were tall in stature, but there was something about them that indicated to them the greatness of their power and their ability as, as fighting warriors. And they were fearful of them. Fearful so much that we know the story. Ten of the spies came back, it says, with an evil report. They were not in favor of going up and taking the land. And only Joshua and Caleb spoke in favor and said, no, we're well able to overcome them. But of course, when the people heard the report, they uh, developed fear in their hearts, and they decided this is not something we want to engage in. Now, you really need to think that one through as well due to where we're going to head next, because now we got to dig into the hard part. And this is a difficult part to follow. Uh, it's not an easy study. My head was spinning when I got, <laughs> before I was even halfway done. But it, I think it's a worthwhile pursuit so that we understand, again, why is this, why are these four verses here in Genesis? What's the problem with this? So the journey that we're going to go on to discover this connection between the Nephilim and this person, Anak, um, is, is not an easy one, but we're going, to, we're going to take it and we're going to see if we can knock it down a little bit. In the book of Deuteronomy, the children of Israel are about to move into the land, and as they are going up to take possession of the land of Canaan. If you look in chapter 2 of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 2, and we see something that's significant there as well. And look at verse 8. Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 8, and it says there, And when we passed beyond our brethren, now take note of that, this is the children of Israel passing by their brethren. The descendants of Esau, who dwell in Seir, away from the road of the plain, away from uh, Elath and Ezion, Geber, we turned and passed by way of the wilderness of Moab. Then Yahweh said to me, Do not harass Moab, nor contend with them in battle. For I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have I have given it to R or given R to the descendants of Lot as a possession or an inheritance. 
the, in verse 10, the Amim had dwelt there in times past, a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim, these descendants of Anak. They were also regarded as giants like the Anakim, but the Moabites called them Amim. So same, same thing, giants. They're just simply called by another name, Amim. Now, if you look on your map, on the right-hand side of the River Jordan, as they were passing that way, going up to the place where they were going to cross over into the land of Canaan, they had to pass by their brethren. So you'll see there, the first one you come to is Moab. And of course, south of there, you'll see Edom. And they were to leave them alone. God had given them those lands as their possession. Now, having said that, um, we move on. We've got to move somewhat fast. Look at verse um, 17. He says, um, or 16, So it was when all the men of war had finally perished from among the people that Yahweh spoke to me, saying, This day you are to cross over at Ar, the boundary of Moab. And when you come near the people of Ammon, do not harass them or meddle with them. For I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession. And you can see Ammon highlighted in, in yellow. He says, though, uh, because I have given it to the descendants of Lot as a possession. Verse 20, that was also regarded as a land of giants. Giants formerly dwelt there, but the Amorites call them Zamzumim, a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim. But Yahweh destroyed them before them, and they dispossessed them and dwelt in their place, just as he had done for the descendants of Esau, who dwelt in Seir when he destroyed the Horites from before them. They dispossessed them and dwelt in their place even to this day. So you'll notice the point of the being is that these Anakim, these descendants called by other names, Amim and Zamumim, dwelt in this land, but they were gone now. Those inhabitants that were there now had, it says, dispossessed them. In other words, drove them out. It doesn't say that they destroyed them or killed them off. It says he drove them, they drove them out, dispossessed them, removed them from the land, and simply took their cities and began to dwell there. And God told them to leave them alone. I've given it to them. It's theirs. Now, having said that, um, this word for giants that you saw in verse 20 is another word related to the Nephilim, the Rephaim. And we don't have time to go into a detailed study of that, uh, unfortunately, but it tells us there that they formerly dwelt there. Now, um, in verses 26 all the way down through the end of that chapter, um, You'll see in verse 26, And I sent messengers from the wilderness of Ketamoth to Sihon, king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, 
Let me pass through your land. I will keep strictly to the road. I will turn neither to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot, just as the descendants of Esau, who dwelt in Seir, and the Moabites, who dwell in Ar, did for me until I crossed the Jordan. But notice in verse 30, Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass through. For Yahweh, your Elohim, hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate. Now, when you read a phrase like that, does it make you think of anything? Does it take you back to the land of Egypt? And what did God do to Pharaoh? Hardened his heart. Why did God do that? Because he determined to defeat the gods of Egypt. And he was determined here to defeat the gods that were in possession of the lands that had not yet been taken. And you'll notice on your map, King of uh, Sihon, I have it highlighted in yellow. Well, I do, thanks to my wife who did these for me and saved my neck, by the way. This was one of the lands that God told them that they were to go in and take, but they were going to refuse it. Now, verse 31, Yahweh said to me, See, I have begun to give Sihon his land and his land over to you. Begin to possess it, that you may inherit his land for yourself, for Israel. And then Sihon and all his people came out against us to fight at uh, Jahaz. And Yahweh our Elohim delivered him over to us, so we defeated him, his sons, and all his people. We took all his cities at that time, and we utterly destroyed the men, women, and little ones of every city. We left none remaining. And so there's a clue there. This very first time we see that mention that they were taking these lands possessed by these giants these Amim or Zamumim were utterly destroyed. And all the citizens of those cities, man, woman, and child. And so there's a reason for that. And when we come to the book of Joshua, we're going to see the same thing. When it was a different city, it just says Joshua conquered them. It doesn't say he utterly destroyed them. He simply conquered them or dispossessed them, drove them out, and took their towns and their villages. He took their homes and their fields, their cattle, and he put them into subjection as slaves, and they began to serve the Israelites. Now, down in verse 33, we took only the livestock as plunder for ourselves with the spoil of the cities, which we took from Aurora, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, and you'll see Arnon highlighted in pink, and from the city that is in the ravine, as far as Gilead, there was not one city too strong for us. Yahweh our Elohim delivered all to us. But guess what? When it came to the 12 spies going up to take the land, oh, well, we can't do that. The giants are there, the descendants of the Anak are there, 
and they're just too big and too fearsome, and we can't overcome them. And so all the people's heart, it says, melted, and they refused to go up. But yet here, God had delivered them and brought them into a place where they were able to possess all of these villages and cities that occupied this land and took them for Israel. Verse 37, he says, Only you did not go near the land of the people of Ammon, anywhere along the river Jabbok, or to the cities of the mountains, or wherever Yahweh our Elohim had forbidden us. Why don't you just amazed at the obedience and the detail that God gave them of exactly what cities, what the boundaries would be, and where they could take possession, and who they were supposed to destroy, and who they were supposed to dispossess. It's, it's just clearly outlined for us. I know often, if you're like me, we read right on through it. We don't pay close attention to it. But and we see as they drove up on the eastern side of the Jordan River, they made their way up all the way to the north, and you'll see at the top of the map, in, highlighted in blue, the king of uh, Bashan or the kingdom of Og of Bashan. Now, we learn about him here in chapter 3. Verse 1, Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. And Yahweh said, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him, and so on. And again, he goes in, takes possession, defeats Og, uh, and they utterly destroy them just like they had the other kings that were in possession of these cities. Now, how are we going to tie all of that together? Because in verse 13, it says, The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, I gave to half the tribe of Manasseh. Notice what it says then as a note. All the region of Argob with all Bashan was called the land of the giants or the land of the Rephaim. So all of this territory possessed by these giants whose scripture plainly describes as being tall in stature. How tall is that? I don't really know. I do know that they tell us that the average Israelite was somewhere, or even the people of the ancient Near East were somewhere around five feet tall, maybe five, four, five, five. They were short people. They were not big. A six-eight person or a seven-foot person would be mighty big to them. And you would feel like a grasshopper. <laughs> I feel like a grasshopper when I stand next to Janet's brother, who's six-foot-eight and about 300 pounds. And he's no, no uh, obese guy. I mean, this guy is just, he's big. I hope someday he comes down here and you'll get to meet him. He's just, I mean, he makes you shrivel. Or when, when I look at um, Danny, whoo, I feel like a little guy. He's, what, he's 6'9", isn't he? Danny's 6'9". I mean, that's some, you know, if I was five foot, we've got a picture 
when we went out to eat one one Sunday uh, morning early for breakfast. No, it was Saturday morning for breakfast. And here's Janet's dad, or uh, Bill, her brother, and he's got Janet's dad around this way and her brother David over here, and he's holding them up just straight out like this, and neither one of them's feet's touching the ground. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's quite a sight. I'm just telling you, Bill is a big fella. I don't, I mean, you could, they could look at these guys and say they're huge. Just big people. But not only were they tall, something about that, their physical appearance just struck fear into the hearts of the Israelites. But here, we see their obedience in God allowing them to defeat all of these giants. Of course, this makes for a good devotional, doesn't it? How many people have giants in your life that you need to defeat? Well, we're not going to go there. But it's okay. It's a good, it's a good thought. And we all have them. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit, though, because they talk about utterly destroying these. And Yahweh, now, how do we make the connection then? Well, you've got to go back to Abraham. And it's a very interesting story there. But back in, um, what is it? Genesis chapter, I should have wrote it down, where he had a dream and God told Abraham, he said that um, all of your descendants are going to serve as slaves for 400 years before they're going to be able to come in and take possession of this land. So in other words, Abraham, I promised you this land that you were going to you know, be able to take possession of it. It's yours as an inheritance and your descendants are going to inherit and enjoy that but it's not going to be for at least another 400 years. And at the end of that verse, he says, till the iniquity of the Amorites is full, or because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So we've got a new thing here, Amorites. Where do they fit into the picture? Well, um, Look at in Deuteronomy, in chapter 3, in verse 2. Notice what it says there regarding Og, the king of Bashan. And Yahweh said to me, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him to all his people and his land into your hand, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. So we saw that down at Heshbon, the first encounter they had, Amorites is the term used to describe these people. And we find out later on, Og, the same, he's an Amorite. Now, having said all that, how do we know that? Well, let's go back over to Amos, the book of Amos. So that's way over there to the right. you got to go over there to the minor prophets. It's Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. I have to tell myself that every time so I don't 
get lost and know where I'm at. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Okay. Amos chapter 2. Now, of course, Amos is, like most of the prophets, pronouncing judgment on Israel and Judah for their disobedience to Yahweh. And in, in beginning in verse 1, <clears throat> he says, Thus says Yahweh, For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. But I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the palaces of Kerioth. Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting and trumpet sound. And I will cut off the judge from its midst and slay all its princes with him, says Yahweh. <clears throat> Thus says Yahweh, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, and so on. Now, look over at verse uh, 6. Then he says again, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, and so on. I'm going to do all these different things. And he begins to name all the different things that he would do. And notice in verse 8, he says he's describing these sins that they're guilty of and why they're going to be judged. And he says uh, in verse, excuse me, verse 7, they pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor, and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge. Well, James had a word to say about that, didn't he? About keeping the daily worker's garment when it became dark because they had nothing to lay down on. And here he's accusing them of laying down on their garments that they had taken in pledge. And you drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Verse 9, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was as strong as the oaks. And yet I destroyed his fruit ab above and his roots beneath. Now, scholars make the connection between what Amos is saying here about the Amorite being as tall as cedars with those back here in Deuteronomy. And he's telling us that these people on the right-hand side of your map there, the east side of the Jordan, who occupied this land, who we saw were called giants or Rephaim, <clears throat> who were connected to the descendants of Anat, who were connected to the Nephilim, were called Amorites. Now, I'm sorry, you had to go through a lot to get that connection made, but there it is. And so the point being is there is a direct line of descendants or lineage from these people in Genesis chapter 6 with the people over here in the land of Canaan. And Israel had gone up and defeated these giants, these Rephaim, because Yahweh had, number one, said it was my goal and purpose to utterly destroy them. And number two, God empowered Israel and enabled them to defeat them in battle and take possession of the land. Now, 
The next thing they do, of course, is to pass over into the land of Canaan on the west side of the river of Jordan. <clears throat> I'm going to run out of time if we just don't go ahead and speed our way through this. I've got all these different colored things on here. Basically, what you want to look at here is the ones coated in orange. Because what does that mean? Those are all Amorite cities or villages. These are all the ones where God told them to go in and utterly destroy every man, every woman, every child, and in many cases, all the animals, everything that exists, you don't get a thing. Now, the word utterly destroy is a unique word, and it's a, uh, maybe I should say a technical word that has to do with what God desires for someone, whoever, to do with respect to his command to destroy or utterly destroy, totally. And that's because it is something that has been given over to God. It is property of his. And if he tells you to destroy it, then that's what he commands you to do, and that's what he expected. Now, you may remember, just as an aside, God had told King Saul to do that very thing to the Amalekites. And he said, utterly destroy them. But you remember what he did. He utterly destroyed them. He killed them all, sort of. He left one little fellow alive, King Agag. And you remember when Samuel came to him and said, what, what's this bleeding I hear? You didn't kill all the animals? And you didn't kill this fellow here? So you know who ended up killing him? Samuel. It says Samuel hacked his head off. Samuel was the obedient one who followed through and Saul did not. You have the same kind of situation here where when, God, when the people of Israel went over into the land of Canaan, they were commanded in certain situations to de utterly destroy every man, woman, and child occupying those cities for the very reason that they were Amorite cities. The gods of the Amorites were worshipped in those places. Now, there's a story behind that, and we will come to that eventually. But if you come back to Genesis chapter 6, you remember there's a flood that takes place after Genesis chapter 6. Now, if you have a flood, you remember that everybody on the face of the earth died. The only people that survived that flood was Noah and his descendants. So the question may have arisen in your mind already, well, if they all died and you had these Nephilim here in Genesis chapter 6 and Scripture makes a clear connection of the Nephilim to the Amorites some several hundred years later at this point in time, how is it that they're still here on the face of the earth? Well, that brings us back as a reminder that these were hybrid beings. They were spirit and they were human flesh. These offspring 
of the daughters of men who cohabited with these sons of God. So did they die? Well, yes, in a manner of speaking. The human side of them died. But you remember, these were spirit beings, some kind of hybrid being uh, that survived the flood because they were not of human flesh. Now, that might be one answer, and that is an answer to how some would describe the manner in which these survived and were able to still be in the land of Canaan when the people of Israel went up to take the land. There is another possibility that in some fashion, some have speculated, and if you don't come to our Wednesday night Bible study, you missed a great study on that by Mark of how DNA could have passed through Noah's line in some fashion. And by the way, a very convincing one, I must say, which we don't have time to go through because that would take at least, a, well, it's just not something I want to go into in a, in a public way. Uh, so just take it at that. In our Wednesday night study, we just let, let everything fly and we talk about it, but I'm not going to do that here. And plus, it would take too much time. But I think that's the answer, personally, as to how these spirit beings. And by the way, the sons of God did not change. You remember, it's offspring of this mingling of heaven and earth that produced a, can I just say, a bizarre being of sorts, one that we don't have a real description for other than the fact that Scripture says they were very tall and they were strong, and they were fearsome. And when men came up against them, they lived in fear of them. Now, what do I want to say next? Um, I've already really hinted at, because I got ahead of myself, with the destruction of the Amorites as you pass through the book of Joshua. And I would simply encourage you uh, either now or whenever you, the next, whenever the next time comes for you to read through the book of Joshua to pay very close attention to all the times that it speaks about utterly destroying the people of these various cities or where it says that Joshua simply conquered them and the distinction that God made between them and the Amorites. And the Amorites, who were in possession of these various cities of the land of Canaan, that God said to simply remove them. Now, you might wonder, well, why were they there to begin with? Well, that's, that's coming down the pike here. We'll talk about that shortly. But we're going to stop there because that's all the time we have. And you'll have to do some study on your own. And I hope you'll take the map and take a look at it. Read through the book of Joshua. Well, actually, in Deuteronomy as well as in Joshua. 
and pay attention to the names of these cities that are mentioned there. And they will, it will enlighten you greatly as to God's, a part here of God's purpose in destroying all of these people. And of course, behind it all, it wasn't just the human flesh that God was interested in destroying. It was the gods of those cities that they worshiped. And God's interest was in completely removing them from the land of Canaan. The peoples that Joshua conquered got to stay in the land. They simply became slaves, and they were made servants to the people of Israel. Isn't it, doesn't it amaze you as you read through the Old Testament? Book after book talks about incidences where an Israelite would be going somewhere to do some event or whatever it might be, and he had a servant with him, or two or three, or a whole company of them. And it's because of these people in these cities that were conquered who were allowed to remain in the land and serve as slaves to God's people. You don't often see that. You don't look at it. And, I, and a few years ago now, when we did the series on slaves, you know, I left that strictly to the New Testament. I didn't go back to the Old Testament, but it is loaded with the whole concept of slavery. We just don't look at it that way. And primarily it's because the word is translated as servant most of the time. But it's the word for slave. Okay. I stop there. Let's pray. Our Father, we do understand that it's a difficult place. This passage of Scripture, it's, it's an an ugly one in many, many ways. It's ugly in heaven. It's ugly here because of what happened and the displeasure that it brought to you because of it. I pray, Father, that as we continue this study in weeks to come, that these things will begin to clear up and we'll see in a, in a much deeper fashion, in a clearer way, the ultimate purpose of God and what it means for us as as Christians today, in our day, so that we might know how to walk before you and live the kind of life that you are pleased with and that you will honor in that day when you come to take your throne and rule this earth. I pray, Father, that our hearts would be touched, that we would do as the Israelites did with the things that we need to deal with in our own lives that we know need to be put away and destroyed and removed so that we might have a clear path to walk before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.